Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Thank you again, and as always, to our Patreon subscribers. We really, really appreciate your support. For less than the cost of a cup of coffee, you can hear us talk about more interesting engineering failures. That's $5 Canadian a month to get twice as much failure content that you know and love. The episodes that are available to our Patreon subscribers, they're what we're calling mini episodes or mini failures. So they're a lot shorter than an entire episode of Failureology. They seem to come in at like 10 to 20 minutes. They have a few more tangents than usual, but we still like doing them. So they're available on our Patreon. Yeah, they're still really interesting stories. They just either have pretty straightforward causes or a lot of the ones that we've done are really old and there's not a lot of information available. And so we've saved those for our Patreon episodes. And you'll also notice if you want a taste of what those sound like, we have released a few of them in our regular episode feed whenever we need to take a little bit of a break. So we did that a couple times over this past summer. I think we did it once in the spring and we'll probably do it again uh, once this winter. But there's still a lot more of those mini failures on our Patreon. At this point, there's about 27 of them on there. I think we've only released three, maybe four of them uh, in our regular feed. So there's a lot more on there that you likely haven't heard yet. And they're really cool stories. So please check that out. Support our show. The funds that are generated from our Patreon go to covering costs like hosting or any new equipment that we need. This podcast does take a lot of time and effort and energy. And so being able to, I guess, recoup some of that or get some of that back is is just really, really nice. And we also love reaching out and connecting with our listeners. And the Patreon page is a great place for us to do that. This week's engineering news is about the Manitou Incline in Manitou Springs, which is just west of Colorado Springs, Colorado. This isn't necessarily news, but it's a really cool place that I've checked out, that Brian has checked out, and it's definitely online with our theme today with the Kicking Horse Spiral Tunnels. The Manitou Incline is made up of approximately 2,744 steps, and it goes up the east face of Pikes Peak. Pikes Peak is a 14er, which is very common in Colorado. There's a lot of those. And they're a peak that has an elevation of at least 14,000 feet or over 4,000 meters. There's 96 14ers in the United States and 53 of them are in Colorado. So they are pretty popular there. The Manitou Incline doesn't go all the way to the top, though. Thankfully, I don't think I would have made it. But it does reach peak incline of about 8,500 feet or 2,600 meters. The incline is just over 1.4 kilometers long and it's rated as extreme. And let me tell you, I can confirm. So Manitou incline, it averages a 40% grade with a maximum grade of 68%, which is fairly ridiculous. Even a 40% grade, it doesn't seem like it would be a fairly steep grade. Until you start going up a 40% grade, then it gets a little steep. And then once you're sort of comfortable with the 40% grade on the Manitou Incline, it goes up to 68%. 
I know when I went up it, the uh, the first third of it, and, and Nicole, maybe you can confirm this, or maybe you had similar feelings about it. The first third of it doesn't seem that bad. It seems fairly flat, knowing that it's a fairly steep thing. And then all of a sudden, once you kind of settle into a, it not being that bad, it gets really steep, like ridiculously steep. Yeah, it definitely does. It's it's a, almost a kilometer and a half of stairs, essentially. And when you hit that one third mark that Brian's talking about where it gets steeper is also the point where your legs kind of stop functioning fully they're working but they kind of feel like jelly and it does it's hard it's hard it's really hard but also really cool it was a really cool experience i really enjoyed it once i got to the top i really like going up hills that's one of my favorite things about backpacking and hiking is like going up hills so i thought this was great i don't know if nicole felt the same way when she did it but at the same time, I believe the record for going up Pikes Peak, it's in the like the 22 minute or 26 minute range. I think it took me 45 minutes, somewhere in there, 40, 45 minutes to go up. And that was uh, that was a lot. And then as you get partway up on the, on the incline, there are some, I guess, side trails that come out of the incline where if, if the incline is too much for you, you can basically just stop and then like go all the way down to the bottom. You don't have to go back down the back down the steep parts of it. So there there are options if you get halfway or three quarters of the way up, where if you're just not feeling the uh, the rest of it, um, you can kind of kind of bail out on that. If you if you are traveling to kind of the Denver, Colorado, Colorado Springs area, I highly recommend doing it. It's really cool. It's got some good views. Um, it's got a really neat history, and we'll talk about this in a second um, about the Cog Railway that would go up and down Pikes Peak which is basically the part that you you now are able to walk up and down. Back to the Manitou Incline. So the incline was first constructed as a funicular in 1907, and it's a cable railway system where two counterbalanced carriages are attached to opposite ends of a cable, and then the carriages, they, they move kind of in sync with each other. One goes up, one goes down. It's, it's a good counterbalancing system. So the whole purpose of, of this system was to give access to water tanks at the top of the mountain, which provided gravity-fed water pressure to Manitou Springs and Colorado Springs. So we've talked before about you know water tanks being holding reservoirs and hydrostatic pressure and pressure head. So having the tank so high up, they basically guaranteed themselves they would always have pressurized water without the need to have a pump system that would be common in, in, you know, in a flatter type system. So you're using gravity basically as a pump in this case. But in order for the funicular carriages to get up the mountain, they used a cog and rack system. And so we kind of like to think about this, like, I guess, like a zipper or zip ties or zap straps or whatever you want to want to call them. They're the, you know, the ratchet straps. If you're, if you're tying down furniture onto the back of a truck, they have the the little ratchet system on them, pop it up, you know, push it down, it clicks and it kind of advances the uh, advances the cable or the strap a little bit. So the train rolls uphill next to the cog and once there it locks into place and it can't roll back down, then it goes up to the next cog. So it's very similar. It's basically identical to the ratchet system that you use in moving stuff. Shortly after it was finished, the Manitou and Pikes Peak Railway took over the cable car operation and ran it as a tourist attraction until a rock slide in 1990. In 1990, after that rock slide, some of the three-foot-wide tracks were washed out, and they decided not to repair them and instead turn it into a fitness challenge. Like Brian mentioned, there there is a trail about two-thirds of the way up, and it's called the bailout, and it gives you access 
to a switchback route that you can take back down. You can also take the switchback route from the top. So you can either make it two thirds up and bail out or go all the way to the top and then take the switch back all the way back down, which you definitely want to do because you don't want to get in the way of all the people coming up. And you also probably don't want to take the stairs back down. That doesn't feel great on the knees and your legs are already pretty tired. The incline is said to be famous for its sweeping views, and I will have to take their word for it because it was wildfire season when I was there, and I couldn't see anything from the top because of all the smoke. So that kind of sucked. Did all this work hoping for a fantastic view and then smoke, which is unfortunate. We'll include a link to the All Trails map in the sources for this episode so you can see exactly what we're dealing with. I'm a big fan of the All Trails app. It's fantastic for hiking. And you can find links to sources on the webpage for this episode at failureology.ca. The new season of the 32-team Professional Hockey League that plays in Canada and the United States has started, which means the Toronto Professional Hockey Team might win the end-of-season mug. When hell finally freezes over and the Toronto Professional Hockey Team wins the big game, there's definitely going to be a parade. Toronto Professional Hockey Team Parade Planning Services is your one-stop sports mug championship parade planning service. Don't be like Vancouver. They rioted because their professional hockey team has never won a championship. Call Toronto Professional Hockey Team Parade Planning Services toll-free at 1-866-865-1967. Now on to this week's episode, number 60. If you've been with us for a while, you know that every 10th episode, we talk about another engineering marvel. And we had been working our way through the American Society of Civil Engineers' Seven Wonders of the Modern World. So far from that list, we covered the Channel Tunnel, the CN Tower, and the Panama Canal. Not on that list, we also covered the International Space Station and the James Webb Space Telescope. While we will probably go back to that list in the future, Brian had a fantastic recommendation for this episode that we just couldn't pass up. Today we're talking about the spiral tunnels of Kicking Horse Pass. And this is going to sound cheesy, but this episode is kind of like a love letter to two of my favorite things, and I I think Brian would agree. We're going to talk a lot about trains and mountains. Oh, I thought it was going to be spirals and tunnels were the two things. No, trains and mountains. Everyone knows how much we love trains. And then we, I mean, we live so close to the Rockies. They're about an hour out of, out of town. So this, this episode really hits home for us. It's a very Alberta centric. Kicking Horse Pass is a high mountain pass across the Canadian Rockies, which bridges Alberta and British Columbia. For those of you that have driven the Trans-Canada, also known as Highway 1, from Alberta to BC, and if you haven't, you can always follow along on Google Maps. You pass by Banff and Lake Louise on your way out of Alberta. You go over the Kicking Horse Pass. Then you drop down into Field and Golden, BC before climbing back up over Rogers Pass and coming down into Revelstoke and the Okanagan region. If you're carrying on to Vancouver, you might take the Coquihalla through the Cascade Mountains, which is one of the more sketchy sections of highway I've personally driven on. And it takes about 12 hours to drive from Calgary to Vancouver, or you can skip all that and take a 90-minute flight. And now that we've completed that Western Canada geography lesson, back to the Kicking Horse Pass. The pass has an elevation of 1,600 meters, or just over 5,300 feet, and it crosses the Continental Divide. Okay, I spoke too soon. 
I wasn't quite done with geography. I knew about the continental divide before moving to Alberta. You learn about it in school. But I remember being just fascinated the first time I crossed the path. The continental divide or great divide runs from northern Alaska to the southern tip of Mexico. And it separates watersheds from those that drain into the Pacific and those that drain into the Atlantic. So all the water that lands on the west side of the divide runs to the Pacific, and all the water that lands on the east side runs to the Atlantic and Arctic Oceans. And I remember just thinking that was so fascinating. This line is the dividing point between how which way water flows. It's uh, it's still really cool. Like I've lived in Calgary for 25 years, not continuously, but uh, certainly for a, for a long period of time. And every time I go to the mountains, um, I'm still fascinated by the mountains. And like Nicole said, the Continental Divide, when you think that, you know, rainfall that's happening and occurring, you know, on on the Continental Divide, there's going to be some rain that was in the same cloud that's going to flow into the Atlantic eventually and rain that's going to flow into the Pacific. That's pretty cool. And I've been fortunate enough to, you know, hike along um, various parts of the Continental Divide. And the scenery, I don't think the scenery can be beat. On to the Kicking Horse Railway Pass. So while indigenous people had known and used the pass for years, it was first explored by Europeans during a Palliser expedition in 1858. James Hector, who was a geologist and surgeon on the expedition, was kicked by his horse while attempting to rescue another horse that had gone into the river. Hence, it was called the Kicking Horse Pass. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I hadn't known that before researching this episode. I assumed there was a horse kicking somewhere at one time, but I wasn't sure who was kicked or when it happened. So that was really interesting. British Columbia joined the Confederation in 1871 and officially became part of the Dominion of Canada. Prime Minister Johnny MacDonald pledged to build a railway to link British Columbia with the rest of the country. So for people that don't live in Canada or aren't familiar with Canadian geography, British Columbia is the furthest west province. Um, that's the province that Vancouver is in, the city Vancouver is in. And then as we go east across the country, um, Ontario is much further east. And then there's some Atlantic provinces. There's a bunch of provinces in the middle, but probably the two provinces or at least cities and provinces that people are most familiar with. It's Vancouver is in British Columbia, which is on the, on the Pacific Ocean. And then there's Toronto in the province of Ontario, which it's not on the Atlantic Ocean, but it's uh, 3,000 kilometers or so to the east of British Columbia, to the east of Vancouver. So this is quite a significant rail link that needs to be established between, you know, kind of two major population centers at the time. There There was a lot of development that was happening in, you know, what was then Upper Canada and Lower Canada with, with Ontario and Quebec. And then there was the province of British Columbia. And then between Ontario, or what is now Ontario and what's now British Columbia, there was just a lot of open, vast land that was really open for exploitation and settlement and, you know, also takeover by the United States. So having this rail link that connected, you know, the two large major population centers at the time in Canada, this was pretty critical to really the establishment of of Canada. Unfortunately, working against this, British Columbia is pretty rocky. It's super rugged. There's lots of big tall mountains. The passes for the most part run north south or at least northwest southeast so to build a railway east to west is not the easiest thing to do you know in mountainous terrain i mean I mean, even now it's it's very difficult to do but 
back, you know, in, in 1870, 1880, the construction technology is is really not anywhere close to on par with with what exists now for construction technology. So this is a this is a monumental undertaking that that Sir Johnny Macdonald has has pledged to to do. Um, so in 1884, the main line of the Canadian Pacific Railway is constructed between Lake Louise, Alberta and Field, BC. And at the time when they were looking at um, kind of the kicking horse tunnel stuff, they also looked at Yellowhead Pass uh, through Jasper National Park. So um, that's now, I guess you take Highway 93, which is the Icefield Parkway from Banff up to Jasper. So they, they looked at this route to kind of connect, you know, through Jasper into, you know, into, into Vancouver area. But after investigation, the kicking horse route was the preferred route. So I just want to stop here for a second as well. Back in the day, or, or sorry, I guess now we take for granted things like Google Maps and Google Earth and airplanes and aerial imagery and LIDAR data and digital elevation models. I mean, these are basically things I work with like every single day. Back in 1870, none of that existed. Airplanes didn't exist. Google Earth didn't exist. Computers didn't exist. And a lot of this territory was essentially uncharted territory. So in order for them to figure out what route would work for a railway, they literally had to go out and walk and map a lot of this territory through some very basic photogrammetric methods that were out there, some very basic, you know, rudimentary cartography methods. And then out of that, they had to make this decision that would essentially change the the face of the country and, and set you know, things in motion for, for centuries to come off some, what we would consider incredibly rudimentary data sets. And overall, I think they did a phenomenal job of figuring out where to put a railway and the, the passes that would work the best. And, uh, you know, the Trans-Canada Highway largely follows the route of the CP rail line. Trains typically can't handle as much grade as cars can handle. But even to figure out a route through this that that's still largely used, you know, 150 years later is is quite remarkable. So the section between the summit of the pass and Field BC was known as the Big Hill. So this hill, and this is why it was called the Big Hill, so it has a grade of four and a half percent, which doesn't seem like a lot compared to what we talked about for the Manitou Incline. But anything over about two percent for a railway and for you know kind of train service that's a lot of grade so four and a half percent is is quite substantial the four and a half percent it actually is the steepest stretch of mainline railway in north america so the big hill consists of a 330 meter ascent over 16 kilometers so that's quite a bit of elevation gain over not very much distance so to avoid frequent accidents and expensive engines that had the power to bring the trains up the hill, the railway built two spiral tunnels on either side that opened in 1909. So this lessened the grade overall, and then it, it just kind of keeps, it's just like a big parkade loop, essentially is what it is, um, when you have to go, you know, in a, in a tight spiral in the parkade, except the trains would do that inside of the mountain. Did you know that parkade is a Canadian word? It's a, parkade is a parking garage for those of you who are wondering what we're talking about. Oh, yeah. Sorry, America people. I believe it's a car park. Car park? I don't know. We call them parkades. It's a multi-level parking garage, a multi-story parking garage. In Canada, we call it a parkade. So put that in your in your brain bucket. Your brain bucket. <laughs> so the initial plan for this was to bore or blast a 430 meter long tunnel through Mount Stephen. But to complete the railway as soon as possible, they built a temporary... 
temporary is in quotes here, 13 kilometer line over it. So this temporary line, not surprisingly, became permanent until the spiral tunnels were built. And this is why I've talked about this before. This is why I say you can never assume something will be temporary for real. You have to design it like it's going to be permanent because once it's in, you really have no control over completing it or changing it. So you have to assume the temporary conditions will be permanent, regardless of what they tell you or promise you. Make sure your temporary measures can be permanent if they need to be. The first construction train that went over the pass ran away on the descent and landed in the Kicking Horse River, killing three people, unfortunately. The railway added three safety switches or runaways to protect against runaway trains. The switches were short uphill spurs controlled by the operator and trains had to complete elaborate brake testing before descending the hills. Speed was restricted to 13 kilometers per hour for passenger trains and 9.7 kilometers per hour for freight trains. Despite all these safety features, accidents still occurred frequently. There's also runaway lanes for vehicle traffic, which are gravel road with very thick gravel that runs uphill so that if your vehicle can't brake properly or you it runs away from you, you can go up this this runaway lane and, and hopefully s- safely stop. A lot of large transport trucks also have to stop and do brake tests, and there's lots of places to pull over and do that throughout the passes. The town of Field, BC was created as a work camp to accommodate the extra locomotives that were needed to tackle the big hill. And I mean this in the nicest way, but driving through Field, it kind of looks like a work camp, so not a ton has changed there. In Field, they built a stone roundhouse with a turntable known as the Third Siding before being renamed Field in 1884 after a Chicago businessman that the railway wanted to invest in the region. Spoiler alert, he didn't. Fun fact about Field, the businessman, he also invested in the first transatlantic telegraph cable that we talked about in episode 31. Prior to the rail track across the big hill, standard steam locomotives were 440s, and these were fine for the prairies, but not for the big hill, and a new engine was needed, which led to production of hundreds of 280s over the years. Do you know know what the 440 and the 280 mean? Each number means something different. I don't know off the top of my head. I cannot remember it 100% off the top of my head, but yeah, it has to do with the number of drive wheels on each axle i think is what it was after 24 years of the temporary line essentially being the permanent line cp rail decided they needed to improve the route seems like a good thing to do they looked at a few alternate routes that were shallower grade but the areas were prone to avalanches rock falls and mudslides which caused worse delays and disruptions than the accidents so they were back to square one And so the spiral tunnels were born, the brainchild of railway engineer J.E. Schweitzer. The spiral tunnels are two tunnels driven in three-quarter circles, and we'll include pictures on the webpage for this episode of failureology.ca. The higher tunnel, called Number 1 or Tunnel 1, is 910 meters long and runs under Cathedral Mountain south of the original track. The train heads south into the tunnels where it emerges, doubles back 17 meters under itself, heading north, crosses back across the valley and across the Kicking Horse River. It then enters Mount Ogden to the north of the original track in the lower tunnel, 
called number two. This one is a bit shorter than number one, but the descent is similar at 15 meters. The train enters the tunnel going north and exits heading southwest and meets back up with the original track and heads into field. So they basically took the length of the track that was there, compressed it into the mountain, made some turns with it, uh, lessened the grade, and then reconnected it back with the original track. The contract for the tunnels was awarded to a Vancouver engineering firm and work started in 1907 with 1,000 workers and a cost of $1.5 million, which equates to about $47 million today, which is pretty low based on the cost of construction projects today. The Kicking Horse Pass was designated a National Historic Site in 1971, and today an average of 25 to 30 trains pass through the tunnels every day. And you can see them in two spots, which I am definitely going to check out the next time I'm driving through that area. Oh, we should do a failureology field trip. Yes. There's a viewpoint seven and a half kilometers east of field on the Trans-Canada Highway, and you can see the lower spiral tunnel in Mount Ogden. And then the upper spiral tunnel or tunnel one in Cathedral Mountain can be seen from a pull off two and a half kilometers up the Yoho Valley Road. And Yoho National Park is the park west of Banff in BC. Banff National Park ends at the Alberta BC border. I actually prefer Yoho National Park to Banff, but that's just me. It's a lot quieter. Everyone comes to Banff. It's very popular. It's There's a lot of people a lot of tourists, which is great that they're coming to Alberta and visiting our beautiful province and spending time with us here. But it is nice. You know, I, I leave the city to get to some quiet and be out in nature. And so to leave the city, drive into the mountains to be surrounded by a bunch of people kind of defeats the purpose a little bit for me. So yeah, I, I like Yoho as well. It is a bit of a drive. It's, it's about two hours to get to Yoho. So that's a bit further than I usually like to drive. I try to find hikes that are within an hour, especially because I like to leave early. Yeah. But like Nicole said, there's way less touristy people. So it's a little bit better if you're just trying to get a hike in or you want to do a little bit longer of a hike and not see people every 25 seconds. Also, camping is a little bit easier in Yoho. There's still lots of campsites, but there's less people going there. The campgrounds really got overwhelmed, I think, during COVID because all of the Albertans who used to travel elsewhere in the summer were here and camping, trying to get some sort of vacation out of our lockdown experience. And so finding campgrounds throughout that first two summers and even this past summer was tricky. Accidents still happen, although less so with the tunnels. There have been 64 derailments between Calgary and Field between 2004 and 2019, which is probably three to four a year. So that's that's better, but probably could still do with some improvement. On February 4th, 2019, two of the three locomotives and 99 grain hopper rail cars headed westbound derailed just after the upper tunnel. And unfortunately, three crew members were killed in that accident. So we've talked about the rail network in Alberta quite a bit, and we are going to talk about it actually extensively on the next episode. But the majority of the network is for freight cars. There is no passenger car route out of Calgary, except for the Rocky Mountaineer, which is a really fancy train to Vancouver. It's very expensive. I know if you're from Alberta, you're probably bitter about it. It's very expensive. I will likely 
not ride it in my lifetime. But if you wanted that experience, I think it takes five days to get. I think it's three days. It's three. Yeah, three or five days to go from. I believe it departs from either Banff or Calgary and it goes to Vancouver. It's a spectacular view. I've looked at pictures from it. It looks like an amazing experience. Um, it, it's on a, you know, there's nice passenger cars and they have a dining car and, a, and an observatory car. And it seems like a very interesting experience. It's, it's a little pricey. It's a little outside of my travel budget for things. But it's also subject to uh, freight rail traffic. So you may find yourself waiting um, in sidings as freight goes by. Um, like we mentioned before, the priority in Canada, I believe in most of North America, is for freight rail traffic, unlike Europe, where there's, you know, dedicated passenger, you know, high speed passenger rail lines. Here in North America, the railways exist to move freight between cities and ports. And passenger travel is is secondary. But we also have, I feel, a much larger car culture in North America than what, what European people do. So much less emphasis on passenger rail traffic here, unfortunately. That said, if you ever find yourself interested in or traveling on the Rocky Mountaineer, I am fairly confident that it goes through the Kicking Horse Tunnels because it would take that route west towards Vancouver. So that would be pretty cool. I probably would have never taken it, but now that I know it goes through the tunnels, it makes me, it's just pushing me a little bit closer to taking it. I think it would be a fun experience to do once in your life, but it it's several thousand dollars per person. It's not cheap. But that said, you're living on the train for three to five days. You, it's, I think there are other stops, but it's not about, it's one of those things that's not about the destination. It's about the journey. And it, it, it does look really cool. So there you have it. The Spiral Tunnels of Kicking Horse Pass a fantastic engineering solution to the dangerous mountain pass that's still in use 115 years later. Too bad it's not used for passenger travel because we would love to ride on this route. Maybe one day we'll take the Rocky Mountaineer. I think it's a once in a lifetime experience, I think. Yeah, it's probably not an every weekend trip and it's certainly not the uh, the most efficient way to get from Calgary to Vancouver or from Banff to Vancouver. But it'd be cool trains right it would be super cool yeah yeah for photos sources and an episode summary from this week's episode head to failureology.ca if you're enjoying what you're hearing please rate review and subscribe to failureology so more people can find us if you want to chat with us our twitter handle is at failureology you can email us at the failureology podcast at gmail.com you can connect with us on linkedin or you can message us on our patreon page Check out the show notes for links to all of these. Thanks everyone for listening and tune into the next episode where we will be talking about wind turbine failures. We also have a special guest joining us for this episode and we had so much fun chatting with her that the episode went longer than planned. So we've actually turned it into a two-parter, which is exciting. Our first two-parter. You don't want to miss it. Bye everyone. Talk soon.